Okay, uh, afternoon everyone. Um, as a committed caffeine addict myself, I'm aware I'm all that's standing in between me and coffee, most importantly, so I'm going to try and be quick. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Terrace. I'm one of the consultants in paediatric intensive care and anaesthesia in the Children's Hospital uh, and also uh, clinical lead for paediatric transport as part of the NYSTAR team. First disclaimer, I'm in no way an expert in seizures or epilepsy. I'm kind of looking around the room, recognising a few faces I know and feeling entirely unqualified to give this talk, so bear with me. Um, seizures are something that we fairly commonly see in intensive care, so it can either be the primary reason for the child's admission, uh, and that can either be as a status, ongoing seizure activity, or more commonly perhaps the children who are just sleepy post-treatment um, who have responded badly to their benzos and come to us for a spell uh, for support. It's also something that I think a couple of the speakers have mentioned through the day that we will see in our children who are in for uh, other pathologies. So we see it in children who are septic, we see it in children who have arrested uh, as well. Um, so it, it's something that we all have to be familiar with. Kind of presenting spectrum uh, in terms of cases, well that's so varied it's, it's difficult to say. So your, your three month old that comes in with seizures um, and has an underlying metabolic disorder, your two year old prolonged febrile convulsion, your six year old known epileptic, your 14 year old who's dragged in out the Falls Park fitting, uh, having ingested something. So it, it's difficult to kind of uh, pick, but fortunately the, the principles and approach are same pretty much regardless of age. So what is status? How do we define status? Silence. Oh my God, he's asking questions. <laughs> so the kind of standard definition that everyone will use, we talk about 30 minutes. So either ongoing seizure activity uh, without uh, recovery of consciousness for 30 minutes um, or intermittent seizure activity with a breakthrough but no return of consciousness. And again, this 30 minutes is kind of bandied around. I think it's a fair definition uh, to use. Um, oh, clicker not working. The uh, other definitions that are out there that are used then, so this, I like this slide for a couple of reasons, mainly uh, because the, the group that came up with this, the ILAAE, anyone ever heard of them? The International League Against Epilepsy. Now those people wear capes. <laughs> they must do. Uh, they came up with this definition quite recently, or, or tried to come up with a, perhaps a better definition. They just uh, kind of discreetly broke it into two groups, so your operational dimension one and two. Five minutes for your tonic-clonic status epilepti uh, epileptic patients. Um, five minutes is important because children who seize for less than five minutes are likely to self-terminate their seizure activity. You probably will not have to do anything other than kind of fairly basic supportive uh, measures. And many of these children will stop fitting before they reach you in hospital. Children who fit for longer than five minutes, uh, the cycle is starting to wind up now and, and it's less likely that's going to break spontaneously. So more likely you're going to need to, to treat. And that's where our five minute kind of treatment threshold comes in for the initial uh, dose of benzos that, that, that will come to. Children who go on to, to fit for longer than 30 minutes, so that second time scale they put in there, those are the children that are now getting into difficulty. So that brain has uh, probably started to uh, starve itself of oxygen. You're starting to get the kind of metabolic uh, catecholamine-driven storm that comes with a prolonged seizure. Uh, and this child is now shifted to the point that they're in danger of having permanent long-term sequelae um, from this uh, seizure episode. So we need to do something. Other definitions that are out there then, uh, so refractory status epilepticus, so that's any child who doesn't respond to two doses of benzos basically and continues to seize. 
super refractory uh, status, epilepticus uh, uh, status or seizure activity persisting for more than 24 hours um, despite kind of good uh, anaesthesia intensive care management. And that can be a child who seizes, stops seizing, uh, starts seizing again. Prolonged refractory super, uh, status epilepticus, it's quite hard to say. Uh, that's status lasting for more than seven days. Something I don't think I've ever seen or been aware. Perhaps my children in my care have been doing it and I just haven't realized. Uh, and prolonged super refractory is uh, children more than seven days with and without uh, anesthesia. Norse and fires. Fires I've put up here specifically because I was at a meeting a couple of years ago and the guys from Dublin were presenting their experience of children with, with fires. I'd never heard of it, and it was one of those things I felt too stupid to ask the question. Norse, uh, many of you know, I'm sure, it's a new onset refractory status epilepticus. Essentially, status in a child that you probably can't find a really good cause for, so it doesn't appear to be secondary to uh, another reason. Fires is probably a subgroup of Norse. Um, fires is febrile, uh, I have to look at this, febrile infection related epilepsy syndrome. So a child who's had a febrile illness in the preceding kind of 28, uh, to 20, uh, 28 days to 24 hours um, and then presents uh, febrile or non-febrile with a status epilepticus uh, episode. They're a group that there's a lot of work going on around in terms of outcome um, and perhaps a slightly more concerning group. So importantly, we've mentioned how children do. I think I'll confess, as an intensive care consultant, this is possibly something I don't pay much attention to. Seizures and status kids uh, are a group of children that, um, to us, are a lot of work um, for minimal outcome. Um, so many of these children will come to us and be extubated within half an hour of arriving in the unit. Um, so quite often, and I'm sure many of you will have had the vibe when you refer these kids to us, we're a little bit grumpy about them because we know we're going to have to go out two hours in the ambulance, half an hour, two hours back, and then we're going to wake the kid up. What's the point? Well, that's the point, I think. You're talking about a condition that's got a mortality of approximately 5%. Admittedly, most of the children who die with seizure-related deaths will die before they get to uh, any of our care um, from hypoxia, uh, loss of airway, uh, cardiac arrest, potentially, um, or will be uh, discovered dead. Morbidity, still significant. So 6% in children over three years of age. Much higher morbidity associated with uh, children under one year of age who present with seizures, and that's primarily because that tends to be etiology driven. So these children are fitting for a reason, um, and I think it's the, the condition that's triggering the seizure that probably accounts for that morbidity. But still, significant numbers, one in three of your patients uh, will present uh, and uh, suffer long-term morbidity. Treatment, apologies, this won't project well, but you all know it anyway. So I'm trying not to make this an APLS lecture, but this is an APLS slide, as many of you will recognise. What do you do? So ABCD, um, you're going to maintain the airway uh, as required. Um, you're going to get 100% oxygen on them by non-rebreather. Um, you're going to get decent access, and then you're going to start treating the, the seizures. So first time set is five minutes. Now, generally, by the time these kids arrive in your ED department, they will have received a dose of benzos by the, the frontline crew um, in the majority of occasions. Your next dose is going to be given at 10 minutes, um, and at that point you can also start thinking about peraldehyde. I'm old school, I quite like peraldehyde. A, it works, if I'm honest. B, it also smells lovely. Uh, C, the smell tells everyone else in the department what's going on. The minute you walk into your general ward and smell peraldehyde, you know you've got a fitter in the department. It's great. Um, so as you're preparing your uh, phenytoin, you can be drawing up and getting the peraldehyde ready um, to administer. 
So a second dose of benzos, another 10 minutes, it's still not working. Then you're going to progress down uh, onto your kind of uh, third level therapy, I suppose. Um, so we're now into the patients uh, who are going to get phenytoin uh, or phenobarb, depending. So your, your neonates, uh, generally phenobarb, your children who are on phenytoin maintenance, phenobarb, um, and then the, the rest of the kids are going to get phenytoin. Phenytoin is one of those bugbear drugs. Again, many of you will have uh, faced this, I'm sure. At the point you're told to refer the child to intensive care, the phenytoin is still running. What's the stock response from intensive care? Ring us when it's done and let's wait 20 minutes, I'm hearing. Entirely. So many of these children um, are referred at this point um, when possibly we're not going to change anything. We're going to walk very slowly to your department so that we are there 15, 20 minutes after the phenytoin's in. And quite often that works, if I'm honest. The kids have stopped seizing and we're probably no longer required, uh, occasionally still required. If that doesn't work, then you're into the kind of the, the APLS, the end of APLS. So you're, you're on the phone to intensive care, you're talking about anesthesia um, and kind of next level treatments. So that's your rapid sequence induction uh, with thio uh, and probably rock, um, although sucks may have benefits in terms of allowing the child to recover muscle function so that you can see ongoing seizure activity. Always be careful a child who you know is fitting uh, that you have paralyzed. Um, because obviously you lose some of the clinical monitors. One of the reasons we are so grumpy about these kids coming into the unit is it is very difficult for us to then assess that um, and the child can be quite happily lying there fitting away uh, and oftentimes we won't realise. What are we going to do when we get to intensive care then? So what comes beyond that first dose of thio? Um, well that varies, there are various units will have different protocols. Broadly it's going to uh, be either more uh, midazolam uh, or thiopentone. Midazolam infusion um, may have some benefits. Thiopentone is a fairly old, fairly dirty drug, particularly by infusion. Um, and certainly we will tell the parents if your child's going to a thio uh, coma and a thio infusion that if we run it for two days, they'll sleep for a week. They'll need a central line because they'll uh, drop their blood pressure. Um, and there's a high chance that they'll end up with a, a secondary associated infection, most commonly a ventilator associated pneumonia. Um, so it's not something that we embark on lightly. Um, and certainly has to be something that's done with the EEG monitoring. Uh, just a quick mention of this so concept, um, which is a very interesting study for a couple of reasons, uh, um, has uh, finished uh, recently, hasn't fully been reported and certainly hasn't published yet, but the um, authors have presented, so we do uh, already kind of know the results, um, but without too much detail. Essentially, interesting study for the first reason in that this was a deferred consent uh, study. So basically, following the first two doses of benzos, if you didn't stop fitting, um, you were then randomised to either receive phenytoin or Kepra. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce its proper name. It's Kepra. Um, and then uh, looked at outcome. And then consent was sought from the families after the fact uh, to, uh, to see. What it shows, what we think it's going to show, is basically no difference. Both drugs work. Both drugs stop seizures. Why is this good news? Well, it's not phenytoin. So phenytoin, for anyone in the room who's ever had to calculate dosing, calculate administration rates, um, will understand the headache involved. It's a slow drug to give. It's a not terribly clean drug in terms of its side effect profile. So I think if we can get rid of phenytoin, um, ban it to history, uh, then this is uh, a step forward. So watch this one with interest um, once it finally reports and see if we're going to see some changes in the algorithms and the, the kind of the management that we expect. So once the child's in with you, um, 
kind of touched upon this a bit, I suppose. Why is this child fitting? Um, and it's important that you cast that net fairly wide. On the right-hand side, that table deliberately doesn't project well because that's just one of the list. I think there's three equivalent boxes in the International League Against Epilepsy document which explain some of the possible causes for seizures. So the causes are myriad. There's a thousand of them. And it's important that you don't miss the one that's causing this child's condition. Important ones that we shouldn't miss then, DEFG, drummed into us from day one. Uh, make sure you've got a point of care, check the glucose um, and correct it uh, if required. Sodium, again, uh, a very important cause. Um, so seizures that are being caused by a child who's hyponatremic are going to be refractory to standard treatment. So you're going to have to correct the sodium. Numbers that we're talking about, so seizures in a child who's got sodium less than 130, personally I would step in and treat. And the treatment's 2 mils per kilo of hypertonic saline, so 2.7% hypertonic to a maximum of 100 mils and then repeat. Um, so if you give that uh, over 10 minutes and the child continues to seize, I would give them a second dose. If they're still seizing, at that point, I'd probably be getting a gas uh, just to check what the sodium was. Um, and the NICE, the 2015 NICE fluid guidance, um, kind of allows us in those per, uh, situations, I suppose, to not wait for a lab sodium. Um, it specifically kind of picked that out as a group to say that the point of care is good enough in this situation. If you're still sub-130, still seizing, you can give a third dose. But at that point, you're starting to ask questions as to, to what and why. Temperature control is something really important. So Stuart's mentioned a lot in terms of our um, kind of neuro rehab, neuro protection side of the house. Um, there are very simple, very basic things that we can do to cool the children down. Child might, might actually be seizing because they're hot, or they may be hot because they've been seizing for a while doesn't really matter. It's not good for their brain and it's not going to help you stop their seizure activity. So strip them off and get some simple antipyretics into them if you can uh, and try and get the temperature down. Routine blood, so essentially that's a, a screen. So you're looking for your electrolytes. Uh, you're looking for signs of infection. Um, you may be looking for uh, more weird and wonderful things. Uh, so ammonia um, in the, the younger age group. Is this a metabolic condition that's presenting with seizures, um, which is going to change your management uh, quite drastically? Anticonvulsant levels, if you know the child's on uh, anticonvulsants, uh, then it's useful to actually check the, the levels, make sure they're therapeutic and it's not just a breakthrough. Uh, we have a, a, a set of twins who bounce in and out of intensive care and their most recent admission was because the, the parents had, had basically stopped giving them their drugs um, and their both levels were, were sub-therapeutic. Um, Pyridoxines up there, so pyridoxines always mentioned, um, again, particularly in neonates, but really in any child up to about the age of two, you can get pyridoxine dependent uh, deficiency, sorry, seizures, um, and a dose of pyridoxine may be the thing that, that seizes it. That's probably something you're going to want to take specialist advice on. So that's when you start speaking to your neurologist, really. Ingestion, um, again, does happen and doesn't just have to be the kind of older uh, teenage group that you perhaps think. Uh, Tudor in the room, our last uh, kind of interesting seizure kid who came in, I think was about 14 months, um, fixed dilated pupils, very agitated, very twitchy, uh, difficult to tell if it was seizure or just uh, um, agitation. She ended up tubed uh, up in the unit. She got a CT scan, which was normal. She got an MRI scan, which was normal. And then we discovered that she had taken ecstasy. Um, so having asked her family several times, because we were all convinced this was an ingestion, they kept stum um, because they were worried what would happen to them. Um, so gladly she did very well um, and just was very over-investigated for a, an ecstasy overdose. 
Um, intracranial pathology, so this may be known or unknown, so um, do you have a space occupying lesion, is your shunt not working? It's important to then consider uh, imaging um, and moving on towards uh, CT or MRI scan. Again, this picture is up for a couple of reasons. So one, most importantly, to tell you, you can scan your children in a baby pod. The picture quality is fabulous. But if you have a child who's hypothermic and you don't want to take them out uh, and cool them down, CT scanner, certainly in the children's hospital, is always freezing. Um, just leave them in the pod. It's great. Uh, the other reason this is there, um, so what's the pickup rate? So we're always asking for a CT brain in these children that present in status. How useful a test is that? Is that are we exposing them to a dose of radiation for nothing? So the guys from Boston uh, published uh, 2018 a case series, roughly 15 years of all their children that had ended up in intensive care looking at that. Um, being the American system, perhaps more aggressive than ours in that these children had, had CT, MRI scan or uh, both. 98% um, of their children were scanned and they found 35% of those scans showed a positive result of some description. 9.8% of those, I think, were something that needed uh, an urgent response. So uh, ADEM that needed steroids, space-occupying lesion that needed intervention, um, acute bleed that needed neurosurgical intervention. So 1 in 10, to me, I think that's a reasonable pickup rate. Um, so it's certainly worth considering uh, a CT scan as part of your, your approach to these. So more importantly, have you ever seen a man look more like he's sitting outside the headmaster's office? <laughs> and actually he is, because that was the service manager's uh, office and he'd been summoned for a chat. Uh, it does say Julie Lewis in the door. It wasn't you, Julie, it was, it was another Julie. Um, so what to do when you're waiting? You've got on top of this, you've got this kid uh, sorted out. They've stopped fitting. Um, they're tubed because they were flat, their airway wasn't protected. Um, so what are you gonna do next, I suppose? Well. You've really got three choices. Um, if your seizures are controlled, uh, or your first question, are your seizures controlled? If they're not, you're going to have to escalate the therapy. And at that point, you're on the phone seeking advice, I suspect. Um, so you're speaking to your local intensive care. You're speaking to your retrieval team. You're speaking to your neurologist and asking for advice. What would they add in next? If you are um, on top of the seizures, you're happy that the, this uh, seizure episode's passed, the child is now ventilated, um, you can consider extubation locally. So particularly for the straightforward simple seizures, particularly for those children who are just sleepy post-ectal, post-benzos, um, there is a, an argument for keeping them locally rather than exposing them to the risks of transport um, and moving them to uh, another centre, potentially far away. It's not something we do a lot in Northern Ireland, um, but certainly across the water uh, in England and Scotland, it's much more commonplace uh, practice. So um, don't be shocked if we ask, we always will ask. If you're not able to for various reasons, um, then you're gonna have to transfer the child or get the child transferred uh, into your uh, local intensive care unit. So what do you need for transfer? Uh, well, you need an ambulance that's not parked in such a way as it creates rude words. Um, you need a child that's packaged and prepared. I'm not going to steal Lindsay's thunder because she's going to talk a lot about um, how to package um, and how to get your children uh, ready to move. Specifically, uh, I suppose, around seizures, the important things, um, you need to be able to assess that the child's not fitting whilst you're moving them. If you've had issues with blood sugar control that has uh, triggered the seizure, um, you're going to have to make sure you check the sugar uh, en route, particularly if you're a long journey. 
So shortly after I was appointed as a consultant, we had a child who presented in another unit, required two or three doses of dextrose for hypoglycemia, and then was transferred up by the local team. Child arrived with us hypoglycemic, uh, having had about an hour and 20 minutes in the back of an ambulance. So to me, that's a situation where you need to plan ahead and say to the ambulance driver, we're going to stop in 20 minutes, we're going to check a blood sugar. We're going to stop in 40 minutes, we're going to check it again. Uh, and then we'll get to the uh, receiving unit and, and check. But if you don't think about it, it'll not be till you arrive at the, the receiving unit. And by then, that's quite a profound time for hypoglycemia. Similarly, pupil checks. I'm going to talk to you a bit about time critical transport uh, after coffee um, and the difficulties, I suppose, of working in the back of the ambulance. But you may want to build in uh, pulling over to the side of the road so that you can check the pupils, make sure this child hasn't started seizing again. Um, you also have to plan ahead for what you're going to do if the child does start seizing. So frontline sedation for us is morphine and midazolam. Midazolam is probably the uh, first drug of choice, so just bolus out of your, your pump. Um, or do you need other drugs available that you can use? Nasogastric tube, always useful. These kids always have a full stomach, and the last thing you want them to, uh, is them to barf all over you um, or in the back of the ambulance because it's just unpleasant. Uh, urinary catheter, not always. I say largely these children are going to be extubated shortly after they, they, they get to us. So a catheter may or may not be an in and out drainage may be enough. Um, but again, you don't want to flood in the back of the ambulance, so perhaps it's reason to do it. Temperature control, again, Stuart's talked about it. So making sure these children are uh, kind of normothermic, uh, trying to avoid becoming hyperthermic uh, uh, in the back of the vehicle. And that is it, I think. Any questions?